Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and we've got a really fun show for you today. I have with me Brandon Odo, who is a critical care PA, that's physician's assistant at UConn Health. And it's a kind of a fun story. Brandon was a PA resident doing his critical care residency back about four years ago at Hopkins. That's where we first met, and then he went off to live his life and have his career, but uh, got back in touch because he's taken an interest in kind of thinking about the ways that we incorporate advanced practice providers into the ICU. And we thought it might be an interesting discussion to have, both obviously for folks who are APPs out there who are thinking about how to build their career, but also for physicians who are working with PAs or thinking about incorporating uh, APPs into their uh, units um, and how best to do that, how they might work with alongside other other practitioners, including residents if it's an academic center. So this should be a really fun conversation. Brandon, thanks so much for reaching out and coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jed. So, uh, Brandon, you also have a blog um, that's got some commentary on some of these ideas uh, that's really well done. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes um, and anything else uh, that you want to include in there. Uh, but let's start the conversation. Tell me a little bit about... Um, well, I guess let's start very basic. And just for a sec, let's just define the term. So when we say an advanced practice provider, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question. Um, that's kind of a, a nebulous term for the the general idea of uh, people who are what they'd call prescribers or in some way practicing medicine, generally in some kind of a role that's supervised by physicians. Um in the ICU, this usually means nurse practitioners and physician assistants. There are others. There are, you know, CRNAs. There are nurse midwives. Most of them don't have much of a role in the day-to-day workflow of an ICU. Um, so usually we're talking about PAs and NPs. Okay. So for the purpose of our discussion, as you said, we're talking about PAs, which are physician assistants, and NPs, which are nurse practitioners. Um, and those have slightly different uh, kind of training um, backgrounds and um, uh, and kind of paths they go through, right? Do you want to just say a few words about that? Yeah. Um, in most ICUs that are implementing 
APPs, and that's the general word I'll use. There are other words, uh, but um, some of them are offensive to one person or another. So I, I think most people will embrace that advanced practice providers or advanced practitioners. Um, the In an ICU that's implementing them, you'll find either PAs or NPs or both. And most of the time, the the difference is usually going to be just kind of historical. A lot of the time, a particular unit started hiring one or the other and kind of stuck with it because that's what they were used to. Sometimes there are practical reasons. For instance, they may be affiliated with a, an NP or PA program, so they get a lot of their students, uh, and, they, and they often hire them after that, things like that. There are practical differences in um, things like how they're governed and credentialed because NPs are usually managed through the nursing side, whereas PAs often through a board of physicians or the same folks as, uh, as the doctors. Um, practically speaking, I really think the, the similarities far outweigh any differences. The, they function similarly in most ICUs. You will hear about small differences in where they come from. You know, NPs are, are trained in kind of the, the nursing model, as they say. PAs more of the quote-unquote medical model, similar to physicians. Um, Early on, there may be more differences, and this is particularly true kind of historically. Um, both of these back in the day would be people who had kind of robust healthcare careers, and they're being retrained uh, to be more independent providers. For PAs, it would be um, – originally, it was combat medics. It could be kind of whatever now. NPs, it's, it should be nurses. Um, but, you know, that used to be – you would be a, like a 10-year nurse or medic or something, and you get a, a new job. Now, a lot of people are going straight through school and coming on to this career with really very little prior healthcare experience. And in that case, I, I think there's there's just not much difference between these roles. You'll hear little things like, um, you know, uh, NPs, their their programs in school are a little more tracked. So they focus on for ICU care, probably uh, acute care, meaning mostly inpatient care, things like that. So they come out a little more specialized. PA programs are a little more general. PAs do a little more surgical training in school. Um, all of these things, I really think, iron out pretty quickly on the job. So... Overall, pretty interchangeable in the ICU, and I really think if someone's telling you that there's a big difference or one is better when it comes to critical care, they're trying to sell you something or at least expressing a little bit of a bias, um, that's certainly never been my experience. Yeah, that's interesting. I So as I um, was thinking about and preparing for this conversation, I chatted with some of the folks I work, it just happens, as you know, that one of the units I work in um, now, one of our surgical ICUs, we have a, a completely NP team. And, you know, I think the, the point that they were making and thinking was that, that they felt that the schooling, as you just mentioned, was different in its focus, um, because their, their schooling as acute care, um, uh, NPs was very focused on inpatient and even critical care, uh, depending on exactly which kind of track you were in and which school you went to. Um, whereas, as you said, the PA training tends to be a little more general. Um, I think that they would agree that, uh, you know, at once you're practicing at an ICU and, and get that practical experience, it probably matters a lot less. Um, and then there's also things that we'll talk about, like uh, residencies. And I think they're feeling and you know, was that if you're coming straight through school and doing a PA program that's general, you might benefit from uh, a critical care uh, residency, much like you did, Brandon. But if you've done, if you've been in, let's say, an ICU nurse, and then you go and do a, 
an acute care NP program, uh, you may have a lot more experience by that point in critical care and may not need to do a residency specifically in critical care. So that was kind of the thought process there. I don't know if that rings true for you. Yeah, you know, I hate to you know, speak on behalf of nurse practitioners because I'm obviously not one. Um, I, I think that if you have, a say, an ICU nurse who had eight, 10 years of critical care experience, and they were functioning at a really strong level, and then they went to school and came back as an NP, that really gives them a, probably a good leg up starting out. Um, but I, 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 I just t- kind of feel like the, the actual job of functioning as a, a practitioner in this position is something you have to learn no matter what when you get out there. Um, the, you may have more or less comfort with kind of critical care or even just inpatient care early on, depending on your background. Um, but uh, that kind of only goes so far. Um, but, you know, certainly opinions may vary. I do think, again, that the, the similarities here are really far in excess of any differences. And whenever you have labels on people, I think there's an opportunity to divide them a little and try to build walls there. Sure. Um, but the, the differences certainly between individual providers are going to be always far greater than the differences in any of these labels. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I will say that we have another unit, um, the our cardiac surgical ICU, which uh, is primarily a PA unit, um, though it's mixed. Uh, but I will say that, you know, the we just have incredible advanced practice providers in both units, whether they're NPs or PAs. I've just been incredibly thrilled and uh, privileged to work with them. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, I think uh, whether it's the people, uh, and they certainly are fantastic people, or whether it's that they've learned a ton on the job, or what, you know, whatever the background was, I think clearly you can have fantastic advanced practice providers who are uh, have either background. No yeah, I'll, I'll give you one example. If you if you're a, let's say a PA and you see a job listing for nurse practitioners in the ICU or vice versa, um, you may still want to apply for that because there's a good chance that they don't care. That's actually how I got my current position. It was not listed for PAs. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, that's a great point. Good to know. Um, All right. So let me ask you, uh, you have said to me that there are kind of different models for incorporating advanced practice providers into the ICU. So tell me what those are and and let's kind of hear what some of the pros and cons are. Sure. So I think the... This is a kind of a growing area. So all the best practices are not clearly defined. If you go back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, not too many APPs in the ICU. Now it's really growing and growing. And, you know, there's probably multiple reasons, things like the the work hour restrictions for residents and so on. But they're out there. Um, and the important thing is they're, they're kind of utility players. Um, the role and scope of the APPs can be very broad or more narrow. Uh, they could be functioning very autonomously or in a more dependent way. They can be kind of writing notes and almost doing scut work or really managing patients fairly independently. It's sort of all good as long as it fits what the institution is looking for and what the providers are looking for. So they just need to decide what is appropriate to you know be useful to the department and then make sure that people are able to do that. So the two there are kind of two extremes, I think, for how you model this, and then there's a range in between. On one end, there's the the sole coverage model by APPs. This would be a unit where you have one or more intensivists and then one or more APPs working alongside them to staff the unit. There also may be residents or students or other people kind of rotating through, but really the, the core of the coverage is by the APPs. Um, this, I think, is a little more common in surgical-type units, and I think it is mm-hmm. particularly well-suited for that. Um, it, 
let's uh the providers really kind of specialize in knowing the sorts of patients you're getting from your surgeons there what procedures they're doing and how the surgeons like them to be cared for rather than having a really a big rotating staff of people who may not be familiar with that um, and it also kind of raises the question of who would staff surgical ICUs if not for APPs. The obvious answer would be surgical residents, uh, but the impression I've gotten is surgical residents are so busy with other things these, these days, you know, they'd rather be spending time in the OR and places like that instead of rotating through ICUs. Um, and I guess the other option would just be you know, sole intensivist coverage, but to, I think to really not leave gaps that need to be kind of in the ICU at the bedside almost 24 seven. And, and that's pretty difficult to do. So, right. Yeah. I would just add that, um, anesthesia residents are also, um, you know, a, a, a source of, um, a provider for, uh, surgical ICUs and do quite a lot of time there, uh, you know, across the country. True. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think a good learning opportunity for them. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, the advantage of this is that it's efficient. Um, it, it you know, everyone who's working there is kind of critical care, professional. The disadvantage is, you know, there is not that learning experience for any house staff who want there unless they're kind of coming through for their own learning. And it may be a less, less of a learning environment for the APPs too, because it's not, um, it's not so much a teaching unit, everyone there who's kind of works there all the time, but that doesn't mean that they don't want or need to continue learning. And that may be a little bit more difficult. The other version, the kind of canonically of the implementation in the ICU is the house staff run model where APPs are kind of woven or embedded into them. So this would be a unit where uh, you have primarily residents and interns, uh, perhaps from internal medicine or similar specialties, seeing the patients. And often um, they're kind of meant to provide some of their own leadership. That's one of the things they're supposed to be learning. And then you have, you know, one or more APPs working among them and they're extending the coverage. So they're able to see some more patients uh, then the house staff alone will be able to see with kind of a, a amenable ratio. But they're also providing a little bit of kind of support and supervision woven into the unit, kind of bridging the gap between the attending supervision, which, uh, you know, especially in many larger academic centers can be pretty lofty. You, know, you may have an attending intensivist who's there uh, to round in the morning and they're sort of available for admissions and maybe emergencies after that. But you know, many times they may not be on the unit very much and they may not even be in, in the hospital after a kind of a reasonable time in the afternoon. Um, and so that, that leaves the house staff to kind of manage themselves and it sort of promotes a culture of independence and trying and seeing. And that's good for the learning, I think. But to be honest, the ICU can be a difficult place to try and see. Um, it's not always obvious the, the ways in which critical care differs from you know, internal medicine and, and less acute care. Uh, so it's, it's helpful to have people there all the time in the unit sitting next to you who can kind of enforce good practices and maybe unit protocols that you know, rotating staff are not aware of. They can help teach or supervise procedures, just kind of enforce the unit culture and be available for emergencies as well. Yeah, I think that, fellows that sorry, let me, I just want to jump in because I think, yeah. uh, you know, a great point is the consistency. Um, you know, certainly if you're rotating through as a resident, you may have just, you know, four weeks there. And I mean, a very basic example is you may not know where the 
uh, tube exchangers are or where the code cart is or where the ultrasound is kept when it's uh, not in its usual place. You know, little things that someone who's always in the unit will know. And it's really nice. Uh, you mentioned protocols is another thing, right? Like, oh, well, in this unit, what is our max for the leave of fat or whatever it is? you know, maybe different from the different units that the residents are rotating in. And if you have someone there who's always in that unit and knows that stuff really well, obviously the nurses themselves can be super helpful for that too. Um, but I find in the units that where we have both, uh, it can be really nice to have somebody with that consistency um, to help out. And I think the residents really appreciate being able to bounce ideas and questions off uh, of the APPs as well. Yeah, there's something to be said for just having people around to sort of work there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can have fellows in a unit and they can, I think, provide some of this, although they also are usually rotating. Um, but that's just kind of hit or miss. Some places don't have fellows. Sometimes they're uh, sometimes in the unit, sometimes not. Um, and sometimes they may be very new and more in a learning role themselves. So, you know, this is, uh, I think, common in medical units, especially in academic centers. It's good in that it kind of optimizes the current model if you already have, you know, house staff there, helps them be efficient and effective. The downsides is that it relegates your APPs to more of a helper role. It's really emphasizing the, the learning for the house staff. Um, and that may feel more limited to them. They're really kind of there to facilitate their you know, learning and their care. Uh, sometimes you may have, you know, the quote unquote good patients being taken care of by them because they're there to learn and things like that. So that may or may not be what your APPs are looking for. Right. And one thing you said up front, which I think is really key, is that, you know, units can be run any way that the, the hospital and department wants to run them. But the key is transparency, right? So when you're hiring folks, uh, whether that's your interviewing residents who are thinking about doing their residency there or whether it's hiring APPs, you want to be very clear and open with them about what the model is and what their job in there will be. And they're, they're, therefore, they can choose whether they want to do it. So like you said, some APPs may say, you know, I'd rather not work in a unit where I'm working alongside and kind of helping out resident a resident team i'd rather be in a unit where it's just me and an attending um and others might love the idea of uh, being there alongside residents but that's an you, you want to know that going in right right i mean who is any of us to say there's a right or wrong way to do this i always say there's a lot of ways to be a, a pa or an np you know th it's all good it, but it, it's not all good to each person there's going to be something that they're looking for and something their icu is looking for right and i think that's really key so good so you mentioned you know the kind of different relationships what well, you may be working along with you know uh, just one attending you may be working alongside fellows residents um, so let's talk about those relationships. Uh, you know, how do you think those work well in your experience or from what you've, you've, uh, kind of learned? Yeah. You know, I, the relationships are, are important and this is probably true for any job, right? Relationships are what really make the, a team function. And certainly in healthcare, we're all based on teams these days, but you know, maybe all the more so for APPs because we are fundamentally a, a sort of team-based role, especially for this sort of inpatient ICU care, you get out more in the outpatient setting. Um, you'll have APPs doing more of more, a little bit more independent care. Usually there's still some sort of relationship, at least on paper with a physician, um, a little less so for NPs sometimes. But, you know, in the models these days, it, there's always a attending involved. So there's a relationship there that has to work. And it's it's built on trust. You know, you have you're working alongside these people. You're both making decisions and the decisions you're making are you're responsible for, but also the attending is. I mean, they are ultimately responsible for the patients. So it's just important that your providers know what sorts of decisions they're comfortable making and what sorts of decisions they're attending is comfortable with them making. Um, and, it, you know, it helps that you're working alongside these people every day and you get to know each other. 
Um, and I think on the attending side, it's also important that there can embrace a little bit of variability in their practice. Meaning, you know, there are some attendings who I think really would kind of rather be practicing their own medicine, doing things the way that they're used to. And, you know, there are multiple right ways to do almost everything in medicine. And it's, it's really helpful for the, the team, I think, if you have an attending who can say, you know, we could do things this way, we could do things that way. Uh, I would probably do it this way personally, but there, both ways are frankly equally good. And, you know, to be honest, after we finish rounding, I'm going to leave and you're going to be the one who's following up on this plan and executing it. So, you know, we might as well do it the way you suggested, because uh, you're going to be the one who's, you know, making it happen and troubleshooting it and that sort of thing. Um, the, the other side is that uh, even if you have APPs who are, you know, fairly new, maybe they've only been there for a few months, or they've been there for 15 years, I, I think they're all going to be want to be viewed as just colleagues within the department. You know, what, even if they are still in a learning role in a clinical sense, you know, this is still the the career they've chosen. They're coming here every day and working alongside the attendings in the department. Um, so they're going to want to be seen as, you know, as colleagues there. And that may mean both clinically and it may mean more on the back end and maybe getting involved with things like, you know, sitting on committees or QI or kind of the management of the place. But they should all just be seen as as a team, I think. And that's what makes it work well. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, no question about it. And then also the communication is so key. And you touched on this that, you know, you uh, as as the attending, I want to make sure that whoever is on my team, whether that's residents, fellows, APPs, um, that they know kind of what I what parameters I'm comfortable with uh, in terms of you know what kind of decisions I'm fine with them making without letting me know decisions I, they can make, but then you know just give me an FYI, and then other things I want to be you know talk to about before the final decision is made. Um, but of course, how would they know that? Because those things vary from person to person and attending right. to attending, unless we had that conversation. So I think, you know, once you get to know someone, you've worked with them a hundred times, you probably don't need to have that conversation anymore. But, right, right, you know, right. uh, when you're working with someone for the first time, I think you want to have that conversation. And I also think that, uh, you know, on the flip side, sometimes you'll have um, APPs who will say, you know, I'm, I actually am not comfortable with that, uh, you know, it, right now I haven't done it that much, you know, so I, I actually don't think I would be comfortable doing it on my own. Um, obviously this isn't limited to APPs. I mean, there are residents who may not have done enough central lines to do one independently or whatever it may be. And so, you know, I think, uh, that the, the flip side is true too, where people should, uh, hopefully feel comfortable saying to the team and to their, uh, their attending, you know, I, uh, this is what I'm comfortable with and this is what I'm not comfortable with so that we have that guidance as well. Yeah. And I think, and I can't speak for physicians really, but I imagine that there are parallels to working with residents and fellows and things where, you know, they're part of your team and you need to just kind of come to some sort of meeting of the minds on what's appropriate. It just maybe even more difficult here, I would imagine, because you know, they are also APPs, they are also practicing under their own license as sort of as well as yours. Right. And also there's just so much more variability in their degree of, of experience and training. They may be a brand new grad or they may have been doing this for 15 years. Right. So you need to be able to kind of see eye to eye. Um, the other relationship you need to figure out, I think, um, and this is worth figuring out ahead of time, you know, maybe a little bit more formal way in the ICU is what's the relationship going to be of your APPs to uh, your residents if you have them? You know, the most important question might be, are they going to be responsible for kind of formally supervising them? And informally is, you know, another thing they can help out with things and answer questions. But, you know, for example, are there going to be times when your unit is staffed by uh, maybe an intern or a junior resident supervised by a senior APP? 
Um, and that's just something to figure out because there may be people in the your hospital or your attendings or uh, the residency programs who may not feel it's appropriate to have physicians mm-hmm. supervised by non-physicians. Again, maybe no right or wrong answer, but something worth figuring out ahead of time, or you can have some sticky situations. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, as far as our kind of governing body, the ACGME is concerned, you know, there has to be a faculty member ultimately supervising. But whether, you know, as you say, obviously the faculty is not necessarily sitting in that unit 24 7. And so uh, whether there's a model that kind of the day-to-day or the minute-to-minute interactions after rounds and, you know, after morning rounds, maybe before afternoon rounds, where the faculty member may not be there unless they're needed, um, you know, is that a model uh, where there's some some teaching and even supervision happening by an APP? It's not a model that we have, but, you know, I'm sure it exists out there. And I think, again, communication would be really key. And and I would just say to to the, you know, um, residents out there who are listening that, um, you know, there's a ton, there's a ton you can learn uh, from everyone on the team. That includes nurses, APPs, uh, you know, respiratory therapists, uh, pharmacists. So I think we really want, I always recommend to my residents and to our medical students, you know, break away. Don't, don't fall down that trap of thinking, you know, well, I'm the doctor or I'm going to be the doctor. And therefore, you know, I, I know best and I don't either, you know, I just need to tell people what to do. I think that's a, a really bad approach. You really want to take advantage of the incredible richness um, to have a team made up of people with all kinds of backgrounds and experience. And, you know, just as I say to my residents, you know, the med student may well have an idea that none of the rest of us thought of that turns out to be the right one for the patient, even though they could be a, you know, a first year med student just shadowing for a day in the ICU, right? It doesn't really mean just because someone may have more experience that uh, someone with less experience can't can't make really significant contributions, and oh, so med students you know, are I think the smartest all... people in the unit. I mean, the stuff they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a, when it comes to a lot of stuff like whatever they're <laughs> studying for their for their USMLE exams, they certainly know more than anyone else in the unit. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think that's that's really key stuff. So well, let me ask you this: You mentioned a, a while back that one of the things, one of the competencies that we teach the residents are required actually to learn is leadership, and so there are units. Uh, where one of the uh, one of the kind of purposes is that a resident is there, maybe this in, in this case probably a senior resident, but a senior resident, certainly a fellow, maybe in an ICU, and one of their goals for their learning during the time they're on that rotation is to uh, run the show, to act as kind of a we call it a pretending, right? Like a junior attending. Um, there of course still is an attending, but that the idea is that that senior resident or that fellow should be running the show now. Tell me a little bit, how would you recommend that a fellow or a senior resident navigate that in a unit where there might be an APP who, let's say, has been there for 20 years, is not only, therefore, you know, a quite more experienced in terms of kind of total number of hours of critical care than that senior resident, but also, you know, is significantly older in terms of just chronological age than that senior resident. So how do you do that well? If that resident is supposed to practice leading the whole team, including the APPs, how do they do that you know, in a productive way? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, like you said, a little bit of a sticky situation. I, I think the way you have to do it is to to view the APP as kind of a, a resource. And, um, you know, on the other side, the APP should consider themselves as, as there to kind of help out. And maybe the a good example would be the way that if you have a, an attending and, and a fellow, perhaps, and the fellow is really meant to be acting as the attending to learn. And the attending is really trying to step back and just be there to kind of uh, 
you know, weigh in on the one in 10 things that needs a little bit of tweaking and sort of make sure the ship is steering in the right direction and maybe answer any questions. That may be the way that the APP can be working here. You know, let the person who's trying to learn do their thing. Like I said, there's a lot of right ways to do most things. So most of the time, it's it's not so much of these details where there's issues. You may just occasionally have to help out with one thing or another. And, you know, if they say, this is what I'd like you to do, you say, hey, yeah, that sounds great. And then just if there are things that come up that are, are new to the learner or just some pitfalls that you can point out, then that's how you can kind of uh, be a resource to them. It's not so much that, um, you know, the it's not so much like who is, is supervising who in that situation. It, more kind of parallel tracks. You know, it's, is, the, is the, the newer fellow supervising the 20-year the APP or vice versa? I mean, most of the time, I think that's not an important distinction to make. They're acting in this role where they're leading the team, and you can be, you should be able to act as a follower there, but while at the same time kind of being, you know, being a resource for anything that may be new to that person. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, again, this comes back to recognizing that leadership, there are multiple forms of leadership and that, you know, command and control, which is kind of what people tend to think of as leadership, where you're sitting there kind of dictating and telling everyone what to do is not is often not the best form of leadership. And so, you know, we actually teach a form of leadership called serving leadership. And the idea here is to really make sure that everyone on the team feels included, that they feel supported by the leader, that they feel that their opinion is valued by the leader. And so, you know, what, what I tell my residents is if you're uh, either in the OR supervise your senior resident, you're supervising a CRNA in the OR, who's, you know, 25 years, your senior. Um, or if you're in the ICU in the same position with an advanced practice provider, you know, the kind of uh, ordering them around is probably not an effective form of leadership. But asking, you know, hey, you've been doing this for 20 years. Um, you know, what would you do with this patient in this situation, right? That may seem like you're not leading, but actually that is still leadership. Asking for soliciting the opinions of members of the team, especially those with a lot of experience, and then integrating those ideas and input and suggestions into a plan, that's an incredibly important form of leadership. We just have to, I think, make sure our trainees recognize that. So that, I think, would be a much more effective approach um, when you're dealing with someone with a lot of experience and a lot to offer. You want to make sure they feel valued by whoever is in that leadership role. Yeah. And again, you know, for probably 80% of what we do, there are a lot of right ways to do it. It's not so much that you need to nail the one perfect way. You just need to make some decision. And that's, you know, what a lot of leadership is. It's just someone has to make a call and yeah. someone is in the role of making those calls today. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, so let's talk about training options. So how should advanced practice providers be effectively trained so that they can function in a, an ICU type unit in either of the roles that you mentioned, either this kind of solo coverage where they're alone with an attending or uh, alongside house staff. Yeah, and this is a, a, a good question because because of this steep growth in the area recently, it is still the case that if you're hiring EPPs for your ICU, most of them are not going to be experienced and many of them may be fresh out of school. It's not this big pool of highly experienced critical care folks out there. Um, so, you know, again, there's a lot of ways to be an APP and to use them, and you should be looking to train people to fit the role you have in mind. On one end, you can have the, uh, the sink or swim model. You kind of throw people in. You, you just train them to kind of fulfill the day-to-day -day functions, and then you let them learn the rest on the job. Um, this can work, uh, but it can be stressful. 
um, and maybe plus or minus dangerous. Not as dangerous as you might think because there is always that supervision available from attendings. It may just be a little frustrating for the attendings if they have to do a lot of hand-holding. But I think the, the bigger danger here, if you are hoping to train people to a higher level, is that people, they cap out very easily. Um, and the, the example I like to use here is a lot of people have had the experience where they went to, to college and they got a degree for some, some profession and they graduated and they get a job in that field. And then pretty quickly they realize that they have to learn all this new stuff to actually do the job. And it seems like the stuff they learned in school, they're not even using it. You know, they're like, mm-hmm. why do I spend all the time writing those papers and, you know, learning those formulas and stuff. Uh, but you didn't go to college to do those day-to-day tasks. The, most of the, the routine work in any profession is is pretty rote and can be taught to almost anyone. The reason you got that basic training is so that in three months or six months, once you've mastered those day-to-day things, you don't stop learning there. You have the, the foundational training that your your vessel for kind of learning is bigger, and you're able to approach you know novel problems and uh, troubleshoot and and think in a more sophisticated way. And those are things that you may not learn in any amount of time on the job because it's just not, it's not that type of learning is not conducive to that, that kind of going back to those more fundamental steps, unless you have a a really strong learning environment. And that I think applies here. If, if you just want to train your APPs to function in a day-to-day sense, you can learn that on the job. If you want them to get to a a higher level, um, they may, they may or may not pick that up just in your unit, unless you have that kind of more, more robust initial training. Um, the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the dedicated postgraduate training, like a, a residency or fellowship. You know, you, you can graduate from PA or MP school and go right to work. There's no required postgraduate training like there is for physicians, mm-hmm. but it is out there. You know, there are, there are por- programs for training, including in critical care. You can call it a residency or fellowship. It's not standardized. So the terminology right. is kind of up in the air. Um, and this gives that opportunity for more of that formal training. So you're, there's more immersion. You're probably working more like resident hours. So there's just more time on the job. Um, you're probably not making much money, unfortunately. Um, but you know, there's opportunity for formal didactic time. You could be getting lectures and certifications and sim time and whatever else. Uh, You can rotate on other services so you can see the way that different ICUs do things or even uh, consult services, things like that. And this addresses a lot of those problems, but it has its limitations too. The biggest one being that it's just not very common. I mean, there's not very many of these programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, frankly, if you ask a lot of people who are about to graduate from school, if they think it's a good idea, a lot of them don't really see the use because they don't need it. I mean, you can still get these jobs. The demand is there. Um, why would you make half as much money, work twice as hard, and then just come back and get the same position? It's not something that you need for your career. It's more just something that may define how your career looks going forward. Okay. And then you can have compromises between these. And a lot of the time, this looks like uh, an onboarding training process, which is in some way formalized rather than just giving you an X amount of time of orientation and hoping you pick up what you need. It's a little more structured. There may be specific competencies you're needing to kind of hit to, to graduate from that. There may be some more didactic time. Uh, there's always going to be some balance between your, your utility and what they're giving to you as far as training, because, you know, you're probably going to be making a proper salary in a staff position like this. Um, but right. the more they can invest in you up front, probably the more value you can give them later. In some places, this is goes to the point where uh, you may get a full kind of residency experience where you're making a full salary, but then 
you owe them back some time afterwards. Um, mm. You get trained in you know maybe a year, and then you need to work there in a staff position for another one or two or three years. So they can kind of get their money's worth from you. Gotcha. That's interesting. All right. So, I mean, is this kind of just very individual dependent? I mean, if you were thinking, you know, let's say there's some, you know, new graduates from PA or NP programs out there, they're starting a career in critical care and they come to you and they say, you know, I want to be successful. I want to be competent. uh, You know, I want to make a career in this. uh, What would you recommend? What should they do? Yeah. So, you know, there's the two sides of it. We've been talking from the perspective of the institution and, you know, from their side, how do you, which of these training models do you select? It, it depends on what they're looking for. Um, and then from the provider side, you have to figure out what you want your career to look like. And again, it's, it's, all, about, it's all about matching. The, the biggest pitfall here is when the preparation for the position is not matching um, the expectations for it. So you know, an institution can hire an untrained person and then fail to train them effectively. And that, again, may be okay if you just want them to function on a, a limited level, but uh, there are a lot of jobs where you can't – you really can't get trained to a higher level. It's just not the right environment for it. They don't have enough volume or enough acuity, or it's just not really a teaching environment. And maybe not you – know, attendings are not around very much and so on. Uh, but some of those places still want you to function at a high level, and they may still be hiring new graduates when, in fact, they really – you can't train there. You could train elsewhere and then work there. Um, but it's not a, a good place to learn. Or you can hire well-trained people to a position and then not use them to a very high level. They can be doing more kind of just rote work. Uh, and that's not really dangerous, but it's, it's boring probably and unsatisfying for the people working there. And it could even be a little offensive depending on the degree. So if you're the APP looking for to kind of build your career from the beginning, you need to figure out what you're looking to do, you know, what area you want to work in and what sort of specialization and then to what level you want to do it at. And the more uh, high level you'd like to be working, the more limited you're going to be in how you can get there because only so many places can train you to that level. Um, and that will provide uh, some more specialization and therefore restriction in your career from that point. I mean, one of the things people like about the APP role often is the the lateral mobility. You can work for five years in critical care and then get tired of it and go work in dermatology or something. You can still sure. do that if you've really specialized to, to train yourself to a high level and maybe you did a, a residency program or something. You've been doing it for 10 years. Uh, but, you know, it gets a little silly at some point. Why would you invest so much time in this field if you're just going to do something else after a while? So, it's it's really going to be on you to build that pathway. And this is the the other side of the the benefit of these fields, which is that, you know, you're spending a little less time in school than if you were a physician, and then you don't have this required postgraduate training. So you're getting out there faster to do what you want to do. But if you want to kind of build your career to a higher level still, you need to figure out how to do it. There's not a, a clear structure of a training pathway there. So you know, how do you, how are you going to get there? You need to find the right position for your learning. Uh, you know, for me, that meant doing a one-year residency and then finding a, a job that was uh, a little bit of a smaller center, but a busy one. So I can kind of spread my wings and develop my own practice patterns, but still see a lot of patients. Uh, it's mm-hmm. going to be different for everyone. There's going to be a lot of, of self-directed learning, you know, that reading is um, this whole world of, you know, online material now of foam, like this podcast, you got to learn how to use that effectively. meaning a little bit skeptically and how are you going to responsibly translate it to your practice? 
you're probably gonna have to spend some money on your own training, which sounds a little, a little strange to some of us when they're coming out of school. Why would you spend more money? But you can't learn everything for free. You know, there's things you'll pick up in a, a airway course or an ultrasound class that you would never learn on the job. But you know, those things cost money. Um, there may be experiences yep. at your job that you can really be valuable to you, but you got to seek them out. You know, a good example would be um, airway training. You know, as an APP, it, it could be in your your bag of tricks to manage airways in the ICU, but it can be difficult to look at a crashing ICU patient and say, this would be a great time for my first innovation. Yeah, yeah um, that's right. You know, it, there's a learning curve there. And, you know, probably a safe way to do it is you get your, your first 20, 40 tubes in the OR or endoscopy suite or something, and you learn to mask ventilate and place LMAs and work up toward laryngoscopy and that sort of thing. Um, but how are you going to do that? You know, you got to build relationships and see people out and, you know, find some time to spend in the OR or whatever it may be. It doesn't stumble upon you. You got to go find that. Um, you got to really be aware of the gaps in your learning. Anytime you're directing your own development, there's the risk of focusing on things that are interesting and neglecting, you know, that some of the less glamorous stuff, but you know, those are things you still need. So you need to be really sensitive to the areas where you may perhaps not know that you have uh, shortcomings. And then at the end of the day, one of the important things for just functioning day to day is realizing that no one else is going to know where you are in this journey. And, and that's difficult. I think if you're working with people at your job or professionally, unless you already know them and they know you, they're not going to know whether you just graduated yesterday or you've been working in critical care for 15 years and you've researched and published and uh, you're functioning at a very high level. And it's going to be difficult for them to know how to how to work with you. They don't want to offend you, but they also want to make good use of you. Um, so be sensitive to that and just kind of you need to convey with how you work where you're at and then um, be understanding when people are not sure how to deal with that. Cause it's hard. I mean, when you deal with a second year resident or a first year fellow or an attending, you have some idea of their background and there's a lot of range within those areas. But when you're a, a PA or an NP in critical care, no one knows. Right. And, you know, I think, and this is so true for, I, I, again, I can't speak for APPs, but I would imagine it's true for them. And I know for a fact it's true for residents is that when you're somewhere new. It takes time. You have to have patience. If you expect that you're going to be seen as an expert or you're going to be fully trusted right off the bat, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It takes a while before people feel comfortable with you, but it will happen. You just have to kind of relax and give it time. And, uh, you know, the really fun example that um, one of our graduates gave me is that when he joined his private practice group doing a lot of cardiac when he first joined, he was a new cardiac anesthesiologist, and he found that the cardiac surgeons, if they uh, asked him to you know, tell them what he saw in the echo and they didn't really like what they were hearing, would ask him to go get the echo tech so that they could get the echo tech's opinion <laughs> because they knew the echo tech because the echo tech had been there for 20 years. And this new anesthesiologist, they didn't know at all. So, you know, of course, eventually, after a couple of years, you know, they then started trusting him immensely because they got to know him. But, you know, there is that sense of familiarity. So I would say that when you're new somewhere, again, whether you're a new resident, a new faculty member, a new APP, you know, you give it some time uh, before you get too discouraged because uh, it will come. You'll you'll settle in and people will start to uh, trust you and rely on you. It just doesn't necessarily happen right off the bat. 
Yeah, I think it's true for all of us, right? There's just there's a very diminishing role for the kind of lone wolf provider these days, like Dr. House, who's just kind of doing their own thing and doesn't care what anyone else thinks. That's true for everyone. This is really a, a team game now, and you know, all the more so for APPs. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, this was a super fun conversation. I learned a lot, and I hope others did too. Um, I want to turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations to our listeners. So uh, do you have anything you'd recommend? I'm going to give you an oddball one. Um, There is a YouTube channel called Primitive Technology. If you search for just that, that's what it's called. There are some others that have similar names that are, I think, knockoffs. But the original is this guy in, I believe, Australia. Uh, He makes these little clips where he's usually wearing shorts and no shirt, and there is no speech. It's just him recreating basic uh, technology. So he's out in the Australian outback uh, building fire or like Ah. creating mud and wattle huts and things like that. And he's kind of going through the litany of technology. People are always like, oh, come back in a year and he'll be building space shuttles. Ah. Um, But it's just it's this guy kind of hitting rocks together. And it's for some reason really serene and interesting. Um, One of those things you wouldn't think you're interested in. But if you check it out, it may appeal to you. That's awesome. That sounds fun. I will definitely check it out. Primitive technology on YouTube. Fun. All right. And I'll say that I recently rewatched with with our kids. We showed our kids Back to the Future, the original Back to the Future, um, which I've seen my wife and I've seen multiple times, of course. But our kids had never seen it or our older two, I should say. Um, and the baby, we put the baby to sleep, but we, uh, showed it to the older two girls and, uh, just for fun, they had never seen it and, uh, they loved it. But I also realized, cause it had been quite a while, what a great movie. And I'll tell you, it's fun. It's funny. Christopher Lloyd's acting is just astoundingly great. I mean, you just watch his facial expressions and, you know, his, his body motion as he goes about these, uh, scenes, uh, he's the one who plays Doc Brown, of course, uh, uh, Marty's uh, kind of um, mentor who uh, invents the time machine. And uh, it is great. So it's a lot of fun. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. And if, even if it's just been a little while, uh, check it out. Back to the Future, the original. All right. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun, Brandon. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jen. Okay, that was great. Let us know what you thought. Are you an advanced practice provider? Let us know. What does your experience look like? And did we leave anything out? Are you a physician working with APPs? And there's some stuff that you'd like to add. We can all learn from what you have to say, and we would love to hear it. Go to ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment there. You can also join the conversation on Facebook in the ACRAC Facebook group. And you can tweet at us. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. That was really fun, and I'm glad Brandon came up with this idea and decided to come on the show. All right. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. If you would like to make a donation separate from Patreon, you can do that anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Big thank you to Kimmy Akash Cooley, our intern, to Dr. Brian Park for the outlines he makes for some of the episodes, and to Dr. Dennis Quo for the fantastic original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Brandon Odo, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, 
What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.